the masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you've thoroughly tested every last post-justed view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Sayers Where would we be without THC? side chatters it seems the more one might dig into the closed door activities of the elite the more messed up it gets from spirit cooking and pizzagate to strange backwoods rituals and odd entity alignments that don't match anything we've seen in the mainstream circles and not only do these activities exist to satisfy the sexual and psychopathic desires of the capstone cabal but it also seems like many of these cloak and dagger traditions go back centuries as the preserved bloodlines of powerful people work towards arcane aims that make one wonder if they're even human. Well, with us today is returning guest Tracy Twyman to dive deeply into her latest work in trying to understand the rituals and symbolic meanings behind some of today's most notorious secret cults and traditions of the upper crust, perhaps tracing back to the time of the gods themselves. You might remember the previous times Tracy has been here, once to talk about her book Clock Shavings and her personal exploration of the occult, making contact with several entities, including what seems to have been the legendary entity Baphomet, and again more recently to discuss another book of hers, Baphomet the Temple Mystery Unveiled, where she talks about the Knights Templar, the disembodied head of John the Baptist, and the idea that rituals and veneration for Baphomet by the Knights Templar was their secret source of power and knowledge that several of the financial alchemy tools they used to amass their wealth emerged from. Both far out and interesting shows, and of course, Tracy has written several other great books about the subjects we love to explore, including Mind-Controlled Sex Slaves in the CIA, The Dragon Legacy, The Secret History of an Ancient Bloodline, Money Grows on the Tree of Knowledge, and now her first novel, Genuflect, which uses fiction as the vessel to discuss these deep-level disclosures a little more safely. So let's get this party started. A woman who's not afraid to stare into the heart of darkness and say, is that all you got? Tracy Twyman, welcome back to the higher side. Thank you so much, Greg. I appreciate you having me on. (laughs) Yeah, I really love having you here. And this novel is fascinating, and it goes into some really dark places. It gets into those things at the deepest end of the conspiracy pool, ritualistic rape and murder by the puppet masters of the planet. And obviously, we've had a couple related dust-ups in the news cycle related to these things since we last talked. But to kick this off, since we're talking about a novel, can you help clarify where the line is between fact and fiction in this new book? Because it seems pretty detailed and well-researched, but maybe the names have been changed to protect the author? Well, it should be fairly easy if you read it all the way to tell where the line is, but there's some definite caveats and disclosures I need to make ahead of time. So if you read, you'll notice the main character, Pamela Auger, seems a lot like me because she has a job kind of like mine, writing books like mine, She has books that are like mine, except with slightly changed titles. So she is kind of like me, but she has a more exciting life and she's a little bit better suited to having adventures, you know, so she doesn't have a husband and a child. I don't think I even said what age she was. I imagined her being a little bit younger and more fit and just more able to, you know, jump around and spring around the world if she needs to. (laughs) And that's where I left it because I didn't want to like really tell people what to imagine too much. I kind of just told the story. And as far as the characters were concerned, I do give a bit of description, but I really leave a bit to the imagination too. Some of the other characters involved, people will recognize as being based on historical figures and figures in current news and current events. So certainly there's a villain that is kind of based on Michael Bloomberg. And the reason for this is because when I was formulating this whole idea, which was about August and September of last year, I really, first, my first idea was just to write about just secret society cult type organizations doing, you know, rituals with children, rape rituals based on the Knights Templar. And 
I imagine something having to do with, you know, the deep web and some of this dark pornography that's spread there. Mm -hmm. And so I started to formulate that. I decided I wanted to have it set in London. And I remembered this monument that I had seen. My husband, my previous husband's name, Brian, he's deceased now. He and I were in England in 2005, and we came across this thing when we were just walking down the Strand, which is in the city of London, that borough. There's a district of London called the City of London, which is the financial district. And so we were walking through there. We ran across this thing that was an ancient temple of Mithras that you know had been discovered. It was left over from the old Roman city of Londinium that pre-existed everything else there in in England in London. You know before there was before it was called England. And so anyway, there's this ancient Roman temple, you know, to the god Mithras, but it had been moved to where we stumbled upon it from its original location, which was just really a few feet down the road. But when they found it, which they found it in 1954, when they were excavating to try to build an office building, and they actually had to build the office building right away. So they didn't even really have time to do proper archaeology there, but they picked up the temple and moved it down the road and tried to reconstruct it as best they could. So the one I found was like a poorly reconstructed version. Hmm. And about a year or not even a year ago, like eight months ago or whenever I I started outlining this novel, I thought, oh, it would be great to mention the Temple of Mithras in the novel. So I just looked it up, you know, refresh my memory about where it was located. And I came to find out that, you know, since 2005, the last time I was in England, Michael Bloomberg has purchased the land on which the original Temple of Mithras, the place where it, where it had been discovered. Hmm. And he's building his, he was calling it his European headquarters when he originally started trying to do this. But then Britain pulled out of the, the EU. So I think that's why he's now calling it just his London headquarters. But anyway, he's building this huge building. It's going to be the biggest building in terms of land mass and I guess just the mass of the of the materials that's being used. It's one of the largest construction projects, in other words, that has occurred in London. And so it's going to be right there where the original Temple of Mithras was. And he's moving, he's already done it really, moved the reconstructed temple back to its original place, the exact same spot where it used to be. And he's going to try to renovate it better than ever. Huh. So anyway, when I discovered this, I thought, well, I have to have you know, a scene there at that temple. And then I started researching Mithraism and Cybele worship, which I had already decided I was going to work into the story somehow. And it all just sort of came together perfectly. And it became this, I mean, I I know I need to (laughs) wind down my answer here, but that became the, you know, opening point at which everything that I had planned on putting in my story sort of came together in this magical way that I didn't even realize was as perfect as it turned out to be. So, yeah, so the location is based on a real location, which is this real Temple of Mithras has been moved to this place, and the new Bloomberg building is going to be opened. And, well, they told me before the third quarter of this year. When I started writing this, they weren't saying. So I just projected, and I said, you know, well, maybe it'll happen by March of 2018. And then there were some very important dates having to do with the end of March in 2018 that ended up becoming part of the story. The main character is based on Bloomberg, but, you know, it's a lot, I mean, in a lot of ways, he's different too, because my character is interested in in a lot of really deep subjects, you know, a lot of esoteric (laughs) occult subjects, and he's interested in philosophy and surrealist art and stuff. And of course, he's involved in some really nefarious things like raping children and murdering people. And all these are things that I have no reason to believe Michael Bloomberg is doing. So (laughs) I guess that's where the fact and fiction separate. Right. Fair enough. And I do find this Mithras temple find really intriguing. The idea that Bloomberg is concerned about it at all is fascinating. I mean, to the elite, places are so important. And also how things were in the ancient world, they always seemed to try to be manifesting prophecy and all kinds of strange stuff that does often center around locations like this. And another thing you've said about this in one of your blogs was that this Bloomberg place is supposed to be like the smartest building in Europe, built to generate its own energy and even share it with nearby buildings. And you mentioned 
technology to maximize the efficiency of the workers inside. And I just went to a conference on consciousness with like really far out Tech Valley speakers, like guys from Google and all that stuff. And one of them did talk about this very company he started that is supposed to have something, I imagined it working like a Wi-Fi signal, like just radiating an area in a signal. But that's what it's about, is measuring brain waves and trying to biohack your way to greater efficiency. And I was like, <laughs> wow, I mean, this is really what they're talking about. Like just having economic slaves isn't enough. You really want to squeeze every last bit of blood out of them that you can. It's messed up. Yeah, well, I mean, reality, again, was provided you know, everything I needed to create this fictional story. And then, I mean, the whole thing just turned into this magical process because I would write things, come up with things in my own mind that I thought were just totally made up. And in fact, I thought were kind of unbelievable. And then, you know, I just do a little bit of research, try to try to work, work things in, try to see what I could do to back it up a little bit. And I'd find out that I'm exactly right enough, <laughs> or that, you know, something that I had dreamed up Sometimes it would happen a couple days after I wrote about it in my story and I hadn't shown it to anyone. You know, something very similar would happen in the news. As far as the building is concerned, yeah, I, you know, first I, I said to myself, oh, this Temple of Mithras is great. I got to have some scenes here. I started looking into the building that Michael Bloomberg is going to put there. And, yeah, it's based on there's another building, I guess, in uh, I think I'm going to say the Netherlands. Yes, it's the Netherlands. And there's this Dutch designer who came up with a lot of these ideas i forget what the name of well okay they've got they've got this term i guess it's in dutch that means the new work mm. and here's what it is man so okay you describe some of it in bloomberg's planned building okay there's something called a digital ceiling and this it's you know yeah super energy efficient it knows everything that everyone's doing beneath it right so it's monitoring you with a camera, with all kinds of other sensors that would monitor your heat and, you know, following each individual around the building as they go. And the purpose of this, they say, is energy efficiency. So they'll know when you're going somewhere and when you've just arrived, they need to provide more light and heat in that area, for instance. And, you know, the building is smart enough to figure out what your patterns are, <laughs> your habits, you know, during the day. So it'll try to anticipate them. And, God. and then there's this other thing where in this building, one of these new work kind of buildings, including Bloomberg's, people will not have their own desks. They must try to score a desk when they get to work <laughs> and they're discouraged from using the same desk every day. And they get lockers to put their possessions in because the tables that they have don't have drawers or anything. So you're supposed to put your things in a locker and you shouldn't even use the same locker two days in a row. And oh, another thing is like, especially the executives, people kind of in charge of certain departments and stuff, they can set up little codes that the digital ceiling will read so they can make like a hand gesture or something and it will know what in the building needs to happen next. And it can signal robots to come and bring you food or you know, just all sorts of things. Hmm. Bloomberg's building is going to be crawling with, you know, self-sufficient robots. And the building that it's kind of inspired by in the Netherlands is also, you know, already doing that. The gate to the parking garage opens up, you know, right before you drive in because it knows, it senses your car, it knows who you are, and it, mm -hmm. you know, it opens up to greet you. And, oh, then you've had a thing about how, you know, there's going to be a gym, an exercise room. And all the exercise equipment is hooked up to generators so that while you're exercising, you're generating energy. And then, okay, the windows themselves are solar panels. And in fact, they're, from what I was reading, you know, all the new buildings, you know, ones that are built with any kind of decent budget, the big skyscrapers and stuff, they're all going to soon be covered with these windows that are actually sucking in solar energy too. So he's got this amazing, you know, building that he's building with this idea of, Yes, being energy efficient, but also trying to, with this new work concept where no one's allowed to have a desk or anything, you know, yeah, supposedly try to make you interact more with the other employees or something. I just, to me, I would never want to go to work. It sounds awful. Right, so. right. <laughs> what do you think, Greg? Would you want to work in a place like that? <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, obviously, some of that stuff from the technology standpoint 
sounds pretty appealing, but it does also seem like it's a lot of razzle-dazzle to hide some potential darkness and a more cutthroat work environment for sure. And I don't think uh, we need any more of that. But is there anything else we should say about this location of esoteric significance, either in the ancient world or the Temple of Mithras aspect rather than Bloomberg's building itself? Well, I... I have had my theories about what the significance might be. You can tell it's a very significant spot, and here's why. For one thing, it's right next to several buildings that are important to, you know, finance, particularly in England. And, of course, you know, thus by extension, the rest of the world, because London still is very much kind of the center of finance in a lot of ways, you know, and like the gold and silver prices are still fixed there. You know, they still lead in a lot of ways, the global markets. And so it's symbolically and in in truth, very significant for the world economy. London is, and in particular, this district called the City of London, which is really the original London, you know, I mentioned there was Londinium, the ancient Roman city. Well, this quote, city of London, which is now just a district of London, that's the original Roman city. The walls of this district basically still correspond to what those original Roman walls were. And the Romans had this object called the London Stone. Well, we don't know what they called it, but it's now called the London Stone. And it's believed to go back to the Romans. And that they used to, they theorized, they used to use it as a, I think they call it a Malarium Stone. So what it is, is it's the stone that you would put in the middle of the city or, you know, if not the exact middle, like the most significant area in the city and, and kind of try to put it in the middle. And you measure everything else in the city out from that point. So anyway, that's what they think this rock originally was. Well, it's been symbolically significant to the city of London even before England became a country. And, you know, people theorize that maybe this stone was involved with the coronation of chieftains and stuff before they were kings of England. And then even after England got created, the city of London continued to be its own separate entity legally. And so there's a tradition that even the monarch has to ask permission from the legal head of the city of London, which is this position called Lord Mayor. Hmm. So the, the queen you know, theoretically or traditionally should ask the Lord Mayor for permission to enter the city of London. So right here in the the heart of the city of London, right where this London stone object used to be and will again, I believe, according to what I've read, it'll be returned there again soon. So in this location, that's the location that Michael Bloomberg chose to put his building. That's where the Temple of Mithras originally was. And there's an underground river that flows right through it. There's several underground rivers in London, and this is one of the you know, important ones. It's called the Wallbrook. And right next to Bloomberg's building, there's several other important buildings, such as the Rothschild building. This is the building that it's called New Court. It's, it's been rebuilt several times, but it is the same plot of land that the Rothschild have been possessing and controlling in London you know, since 1700, since they began their, you know, financial control of England and then, you know, other territories as well. So this is kind of, you know, ground zero of at least that particular aspect of their empire. And also, okay, so the Bank of England is right next to it. The London Bullion Market, where they, at least they used to up until about a year ago, set the price of gold and silver in that building. That building is right there. And so, yeah, you've got the London Stone, you've got the Temple of Mithras, Bank of England, London Bullion Market Association, all right there in this plot of land that's right around this this street called Bucklersbury. And it's shaped like a Superman diamond, which is something I mentioned in the book and <laughs> has a great deal of significance. But right. so all, all these things are right there. I think it's important. Little bit of a spoiler, but I kind of think it's related to the myth that England is built on top of the, the island rests on top of the tomb of Kronos. So there, and this goes back to the Greeks. They said that Kronos was built, you know, after the Titans got dethroned by the Olympian gods, Kronos and his buddies got put in this tomb, they call it, but 
he's a god, so he's not really dead. So it's more like a prison, and he's kind of sleeping there. And they described it as being underneath the British Isles. And for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that Mithras is considered the same as Saturn. Mithras is this Persian deity that was imported to the Roman Empire right. and you know worshipped by Romans in the late part of the Roman Empire. So Mithras is Saturn. Saturn is Kronos. These are all names for the same figure. So you've got a temple to Mithras right there, to Kronos Saturn, and you've got a myth that Kronos is buried and kind of locked away in a tomb underneath England. So I think it's right there. I think that's the location. There's a number of other reasons why I think that too, most of which I explain eventually one way or another in the book. But yeah, that's what I think is going on there. So it's kind of like, you know, one of these center of the world kind of areas, you know, it's a very sacred spot, I think. Right. Yeah. I love that nexus of symbolism around Mithras, Kronos, Saturn. There are researchers out there who talk about the black sun, or even it ties into the electric universe that Saturn might have once been our sun, and just really weird stuff, but it seems to be important to them, at least, and it's pretty clear the elite want to control certain spots on the planet for deep esoteric reasons that they aren't sharing with us. And before we do get too deep, we should probably talk about those ancient cults of Mithras and Cybele. You mentioned Cybele earlier. I think people probably know a little less about that particular entity. But let's discuss maybe the, the symbolism and traditions surrounding them, because I guess the suggestion is that in some elite occult circles, at least some of these traditions might still be intact. Well, yes. And one of the vectors through which these traditions have continued on, I think, is through Templarism, which then influenced Freemasonry and the OTO and a bunch of other Western esoteric groups. But Let's just start with Cybele worship, for instance, which goes back way further. You know, she was worshipped in the history of the Romans way further back in history than Mithras. And, you know, it, it is, again, a import from Phrygia, from Anatolia, but they, you know, incorporated it well into their culture to the point where she kind of became an embodiment of the state to them. She's the mother goddess. And so she's considered equivalent to sort of kind of like Gaia and Rhea, these kinds of yeah, mother goddesses from Greek mythology. I, I make the point in the book that I think these are the same figure and I'm not just mashing all the girl goddesses together, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm not being sexist. There's a real reason why I think all these characters really are the same thing. So Cybele's worship was marked with two very particular types of rituals. One was the castration of the priests. The priests would go into a frenzy during this festival to Cybele that would happen once a year at the end of March. They'd have a, you know, a parade. They'd go walking down the street drunk and on drugs, go into a, you know, religiously induced frenzy. And then the priests or the wannabe priests, the ones that were being inducted into the priesthood, would castrate themselves with a knife right there in front of everybody. And this is all in homage to Addis, who's Cybele's son. And the whole mythology of Cybele and Addis is really the main myth of the Cybele worship. So the story is that she was a goddess, the mother goddess. She had a son. She initially, according to the more detailed versions of the story, didn't want him and exposed him, you know, left him for dead, basically, as an infant and left him alone. But someone else found him, raised him up. And then when he became an adult or not even an adult, really, but, you know, when he began to mature and he was like a prepubescent child is how I take it from the description, she fell in love with him and Depending on which version of the story you read, you know, some kind of gloss over this part, but it kind of seems like if you go into the more detailed versions that she had a sexual relationship with him when he was young. But then he wanted to marry a woman, you know, when he grew up and they were going to get married. In some versions of the story, they're actually at the altar, you know, getting married. And Cybele shows up. And according to some versions, 
well, the most common version is just that she filled him with madness, deliberately inducing him to castrate himself. And then he bled out and died. Hmm. And, you know, that was her revenge to him for loving someone else. But then the story goes that she felt bad. She felt guilty. She missed him. And so either one to three days later, depending on the version, she resurrected him. And then this is celebrated in the rites of Addis. So this would all happen in the same week, the last week of March, ending on April 1st. So one day they'd celebrate the castration. A few days later, they celebrate his resurrection. And, you know, again, it's all, you know, synced up with the similar kinds of death and resurrection rites we have now with Jesus. Right. You know, so it's, it's all tied into Easter. Mm-hmm. So in my story, by the way, Easter, this is true. Next year, Easter and April Fool's Day will be the same day. April 1st next year is going to be Easter. So I utilize that. In my story, we haven't had this kind of confluence of April Fool's Day and Easter since 1956. Hmm. So I tied that in with my story because I had, you know, the Temple of Mithras that was discovered in 1954. I had some important events in the story taking place between those two years. (laughs) So this is like, you know, when you're reading the story now, it's we're kind of recreating things that happened the last time there was an Easter on April Fool's Day. Which, by the way, April Fool's Day is linked up with Easter and with the fact that we used to have, you know, in the West, we used to have that as kind of the, well, New Year's Day was April 1st for some countries in the West up until, I forget, it was like two or 300 years ago. Anyway, so they, they still call this day Lady Day or the day that it's linked up with. I know I'm getting something wrong here because I'm trying to remember mm-hmm. what was uh, – I have to look it up. Lady Day was like maybe the 25th. I don't know. It's all explained in the book. <laughs> but late, okay, Lady Day, April Fool's Day, and this other date of you know celebrating it as New Year's Day. All these things are linked together. The reason why they would call it April Fool's Day is that's sort of a joke on the people that were still considering it to be you know, the New Year's Day. Mm-hmm. So a long explanation, but anyway, that's some of the use of the Cybell symbolism that comes up. Interesting. And there's way more, Greg, if you have time, <laughs> I can tell you all about Cybell. Well, I have heard you talk about Cybell a little more and um, really emphasize this idea of being represented by a rock or a hermaphroditic rock. And I think that's pretty interesting because I like that panspermia perspective that perhaps an asteroid landed here and unpacked itself and eventually manifested man who will then eventually manifest some tech form. Uh It's a really interesting concept, but a lot of people have suggested, you know, the dome on the rock is just an asteroid and people, they kind of laugh about that. But if it really was the source of life on earth, potentially, then maybe there's deeper significance there than people realize. But I just liked that idea of the hermaphroditic rock and it could be an asteroid that contained two sexes that built everything we have now. So that's kind of weird. But I guess I would ask, Cybele and Mithras, is there some linkage between there? I think so. And the things that I found proved it to me. The interesting thing is that I would say modern myth experts and history experts try to debunk the idea that there's any real link between these two cults. But if you go back to the early 20th century and the late 19th century, the writings that were being done about Mithras back then, and I would suggest Jesse Weston has a good book about the subject that gets into the subject from ritual to romance is good. And then also Franz Cumont wrote several books about Mithras. So if you want to get, you know, where I'm getting some of my information, that's a good place to go. Anyway, here's the idea. Okay, so f- first of all, yes, you've got Cybele was worshipped as a rock. And there's statues of her that they claim were carved from a meteorite, you know, a stone from heaven that was her, and then they made a statue out of her. And then there's also references to her as a rock where there's no statue involved. You just envision people worshipping a rock, which I think is why some authors have theorized that maybe the one at the Kaaba, the the black stone at the Kaaba, 
might actually be the Cybele stone. Because I think I don't think we have the stone that they were really worshiping as Cybele. I think that that's been lost. So I don't think we really know what it really looked like. But yeah, I think originally there was this idea, she's a stone and she fell from heaven. They link her with this other, I think it's just another name for the same goddess, another Phrygian name. So Agditus is another name for the same person. And they describe this figure as being originally hermaphroditic. And then the other gods in heaven thought that this creature was a freak and they didn't like it. So they cut her penis off and then cast her out of heaven. So there you have the idea of the rock, you know, Cybele coming from heaven, but it has been castrated now. So now it's a goddess. And then she gives birth to a son, right? And that son is celebrated as Addis. But then we also have this other Phrygian god, Mithras. Now Mithras is born from a rock. And it's just like, you know, as if, yeah, there's just a stone there on the ground. It pops open and there's this guy comes out and he's holding. They always show him coming out of the rock, holding in one hand a knife and in the other hand a torch. So he can see, you know, in the realm that he's coming into. So it's like the rock is sort of a portal, you know, but it's also an egg. It's like there's a universe inside that egg. And then he comes out and now he's in this universe. And he's the god of this universe. Hmm. And this is what I found over and over again in the kinds of rituals and myths that I ended up dealing with for this story. That is the story they seem to be telling. Mithras is like, and I'm using sort of the most developed versions of the story. You know, when you've got all the different lines of influence coming together at the late Roman Empire, when they've taken the Persian myth and mixed in their own stuff. Then you get this god who's like Saturn, but he conquers the sun. He conquers all these other gods, and he becomes God himself. This story of him emerging from the rock, and then there's these stories of him you know, slaying a bull and encountering all these other figures. There's always in Mithraeums a picture of him shaking hands with Saul, and then Saul kneeling to him. So go ahead. Oh, no, uh, I just, I think it's all... So interesting. And I had uh, Chris Knowles on the show not long ago, and he was talking about the symbolism of that Prometheus statue at Rockefeller Center or that statue that they say is Prometheus. And he was taking a deeper look at it and how the figure isn't actually chained to the rock, but looks like it's emerging from it. Mm. And he was suggesting that they're basically hiding that this might be actually a statue of Mithras. And it does seem like there's a lot of layers to what they're really into deep below the surface. But how should we maybe tie this to uh, modern day? Because I think a lot of people would assume these old traditions and cults would have just died out along with the things they used to partake in. But what suggested still going on? Clearly, Bloomberg has an interest in that Mithras temple. But do we see other indications that they're still very interested in this stuff? Oh, yeah. And I'll try to work that into my answer here because I want to. I want to sort of add something to what I was just saying about the rock and Mithras, okay? The story of Mithras, there's a version of it that kind of elaborates on what happens next and how he has his own son. He creates his own heir, right? They say that Mithras hated women. And the Mithras cult was an all-male cult. And they even, you know, the rituals they had the kind of phrases they used in the rituals you can tell they did not like women and so this this myth says mithras himself did not like women but he wanted an heir he wanted a son so he ejaculated onto a rock and the rock became pregnant and a child came from that which they say is fannies it's like the the orphic egg came from that hmm. so an orphic egg is you know it's a universe in itself so what we have here is a story of a God who came from a rock himself and then went on to create another God and another universe, really, with the same process of ejaculating onto a rock. So, OK, this is all interesting because I think it ties in with this idea, you know, that we're, we're in a matrix or a false reality. Hmm. You mentioned the Saturn cube idea, which is so popular now. Right. You know, the idea that the figure of Saturn, whatever he is, is created some kind of 
world of illusion for us to live in and we're, we're inside of this box. Well, so, you know, I think that that's what this story is hinting at about Mithras. But of course, whoever came up with it wouldn't have known anything about computers or virtual reality or anything. And really, that's the version of these ideas that we have now in our reality. But there's a lot of other ways you could picture the same thing kind of happening. Mm -hmm. You know, we have computers with buttons on them now. Maybe it's something else in another dimension. So that's, that's I think this is a story about Mithras breaking out of one false artificial prison world and then making his own, you know. And I think that the elite, there's some of them that have the same idea because, you know, last year you had a story that came out that was in the news, reprinted in several different, you know, mainstream newspapers and magazines. They all had kind of paraphrased versions of the same story where they were saying there's a group of billionaires and they wouldn't give it a name. It wasn't like a secret society or anything. They just said there's a group of billionaires, secret, because they're secret. There was not like a name to the group or anything. But they said that these billionaires are working secretly on some kind of way to break us out of the matrix. They believe we're in a simulation and they're going right. to break us out. And then that story just went. Nobody addressed it again. There was no elaboration on who these guys are or what they're doing. And it was right around the time the story came out, just as I'm already writing this story. And I didn't intend on using that idea in my story, but it ended up just going there. You know, that's where the information led me. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing, I guess, that, you know, not to spoil it too much, but that is the sort of thing that the villain in my story is aiming towards and using the building as a technology device to do that is part of the story. Mm. Yeah, I really do love those ideas that the elites true plan and agenda is to try to jailbreak this enclosure. It gets into that idea of subverting the gods, you know, the whole Lucifer motif. We see a lot of Lucifer symbolism. And it really does get to that place of wondering, is the entity that built this thing, is the creator of this construct, a positive or negative entity? I know you did a great show with Marty Leeds, who I really like and who is really become uh, a friend of mine and is a pretty clear proponent of the flat earth model. Mm. Of course, Marty is an optimist and our biggest disagreement is about that stuff. Like, is this creator entity positive or negative? If it's a negative entity who has this on some prison planet, archonic energy farm, then maybe the elites plan to jailbreak. It isn't so bad, but if it is supposed to be some paradise crafted by an altruistic being, then they're definitely up to no good. So it's really just depends on how you view the moral alignments of these characters. Well, I think that what I ended up finding in my research, because I got deep into the secrets of the OTO, for instance, I mean, I'm pretty sure I've seen things that only a handful of people on earth have seen. Damn. Other than, you know, other OTO initiates, not very many non-initiates have seen what I've seen. And yeah, so I got into researching the rituals of Aleister Crowley and the kind of stuff that he was into and also just alchemy, which, you know, I've been looking at sort of bewilderedly for years and trying to make head or tail of. I figured out years ago that it involves some recipe of human blood and body parts and things like that and the human soul utilizing all this stuff somehow. Shit. But it seems to me what I found is a technology, a magical technology, and I'm not saying I know all the ins and outs of how it works, but I've deconstructed the symbolism of these secret rituals and recipes, and they're talking about ways of creating your own universe and destroying the one you're in now. Hmm. And you could actually just look at it as you are trying to break out of the prison you're in now, and in the process, you'll probably end up destroying the one that you came from. So I believe that I found secret encoded magical instructions on how to become your own God. And in the process, you either destroy or imprison or it's kind of can be seen as both the world that you come from. Yeah. And, you know, you can you can see this when you look at some of the things that are easy to find are the equinox of the gods ritual that the OTO engages in. 
there's writings that Aleister Crowley had about creating a homunculus right. through sex magic and usually involves some kind of unnatural birth. His idea, what he thought would be the most potent way to do it, would be to somehow impregnate an anus and have an anal birth. Hmm. So that all <laughs> made its way into the story. I gotta warn you guys, it's pretty gruesome, but and it's, it's uh, definitely something that Alistair Crowley was writing about. Right. And when he's talking about an anal birth, he's talking about the anal birth of a universe. And he totally, totally wrote about that in his diaries, if you look. <laughs> so, you know, there's, <laughs> I guess the question of whether it's bad or good for us to be in a prison, I don't think that there's an answer to that. You know, it depends on what side, I guess, you're on, in or out, right? So if you're on the outside and you have a little snow globe that entertains you, then you like it and you think it's good. But if you're in the snow globe and then you realize that your world is fake, you might not like it. Right. And especially if you realize this is what I think is happening. The world that is either created by the God and also possibly the world that he leaves and ascends to, you know, to become higher than, I think that those worlds can be used as batteries or machines creating energy for you. So I think that that's going on now. And, you know, to the extent that we have energy being siphoned out of our world and given to someone else on the outside, that means that we are slaves. And so, you know, from that perspective, it seems bad. Right. But I don't think there's any way to escape it without doing that to somebody else. Hmm. That is, uh, that's pretty dark. And I guess, does this all culminate in what you're calling the conquering of the sun ritual? Can you detail that piece for us? Yeah, yeah, I'll try to. Yeah. This is a concept that I just found is in all of the Greek creation myths, and you can pretty much find it in a lot of the older, you know, major cultures' creation myths. And then it's in alchemy. It's in almost all of the alchemical pictures and manuscripts. So what it is, is it's the idea that each cycle, you know, the Greeks, for instance, broke everything down into ages. The Gnostics called these things aeons. And each of these cycles had a different major god that was in charge of everything. So the Greeks have these stories of, you know, first you have Oranos and Gaia. So you have heaven and earth. Then they split apart. And in the space in between them, then these other cycles occur. Uranus is overthrown in the process of being split apart from his mate. And then... See, well, I'll try not to uh, get too detailed here, but that story is about, okay, Uranus and Gaia originally are one hermaphroditic being, and they're kind of like having sex constantly, you know, and having children. They're engendering children inside the womb of the female half of the being, but then those children cannot get out. And so the story, the myth tells about how Uranus was afraid that he was going to be usurped by his, one of his children. And so he didn't want them to be born. And then they tell the story of how Gaia gave Saturn or Kronos, you know, one of the children inside of her, a knife to use to castrate their father. And that's how Uranus gets overthrown by Saturn. Right. And then they say that heaven and earth got separated. And then that's how that creation exists and that it will cease existing if they ever come back together again somehow. And then they say that Atlas who is one of the Titans was punished with the burden of holding up heaven and earth. Hmm. Now you've got this story it goes on. So first you got the era of the Titans and ruled over by Kronos. And that's remembered as being the golden age. Then you have Saturn overthrown by Zeus and the Titans are said to be locked in Tartarus. And like I said, they're still there, supposedly. They're still alive. They're underneath us somehow. So I, I'm going through this story here and incorporating it into my fiction story. And I realized, you know, I thought, well, okay, Zeus was the main god then during the Olympian period. Did they ever say that 
Zeus got overthrown by anyone. And, I, and you know, at first I'm thinking, oh, well, that's dumb because the Greeks would never have said that. You know, he was their god. So it would be like us saying, oh, God's dead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which we did say that. <laughs> yep, Nietzsche <laughs> so, did. So um, maybe there is a comparison there. But anyway, actually, they do have some specifics about who would have been Zeus's heir. And they say that it was Apollo, who was a sun god. And this caused me to think, well, okay, people always compare Christianity to sun worship. And Jesus is always depicted as the sun or having a kind of a solar halo behind his head. And then all these Christian rituals are, you know, timed to old pagan holidays, usually having to do with whatever the sun's doing at that part of the year, you know, equinoxes and solstices and things like that. So, you know, we definitely have kind of a solar worship going on now. Absolutely. But and I wondered, you know, everyone says that's the ancient worship of the ancient peoples, but then they were worshiping Jupiter. And so to try to tighten everything up, I just it occurred to me that maybe this position of main God can be likened to the sun and that we have different cycles in which someone else plays the role of the sun. Yeah, <laughs> I could see that. I mean, it's it's pretty deep stuff. and. As we're getting to kind of the halfway point here, I wanted to read something from this great post you have on your blog called Mad Love, and it kind of ties in a lot of the stuff that we've talked about so far. But you say, I have revealed a number of symbols, some of them treasured as concealing great spiritual mysteries in the hermetic traditions of Western occultism, which all seems to be related to the ideas of raping children, consuming human flesh, and using the bodies of victims, both dead and alive, to breed supernatural entities, golems, hermunculi, and many other things. The souls that are incarnated in these rites are ensnared by the magicians performing them, seduced into coming into our world, and then trapped inside of a carnal container of some sort. And that is freaky stuff, but it is in line with what with what a lot of people think is going on. I guess, do you have any idea what happens next or what happens to these beings once they're trapped or created and how they're used? I mean, obviously our world goes on without a lot of people knowing about this. So it, I don't know how epic it is, but do we know how far this goes beyond the stories of Crowley we've heard, maybe something in the last hundred years? Well, okay, I have my own theories, and, you know, uh, anyone's free to just make up whatever they want, I guess. But <laughs> basically, I think that when I'm talking about this ritual of conquering the sun, that ties in here, because I saw this being depicted in, like I said, alchemical stories. And then there's actually two kind of fictional versions of the old alchemical stories that have been utilized in modern times. Well, I'll tell you about Jodorowsky's film, The Holy Mountain. This really kind of spelled it out to me. I thought I was seeing this pattern, and then I watched his film again, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's totally what's going on. Because his film, he's, he's open about it. You know, it's an alchemical allegory, and he says it's based on two things. The Invisible Mountain book by Damal, forgetting the name of it now. It's called the, maybe it's called the Invisible Mountain or something. No, it's called Mount Analog. Okay. And then the, he's got this other one that he based it on, which is Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. So both Jodorowsky's Holy Mountain and its an inspiration, which is this book from the 1600s called The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz. Maybe it's 1700s. Anyway, the story is about killing the seven archons, the seven planetary deities that the ancients thought of as being in control of our whole world and killing them and then regenerating them. So in both the Christian Rosenkreutz story and Jodorowsky's movie, you have people that are like embodying the, you know, they have the spirits of these gods inside of them. And then they are killed or sacrificed. And then it's implied that a master alchemist can regenerate them. You're literally melting down their bodies. Damn. Separating their souls, using the blood and the body material, changing it alchemically through different scientific processes, and then 
using that to form new bodies of hosts that will hold the spirits of the, the ones that you've just sacrificed. And then you make them into a new sun and a new moon, which in the chemical wedding of Christian Rosenkreutz, they're depicted as just having human bodies. Okay. Mm. They're a new sun and a new moon, and they become the new king and queen of the universe. And they generate, they breed and create the other five classical planets, the other five gods. And there you have the gods of a new universe. So this is how I think it's done. You have to somehow entice the spirits of the seven gods down from their seats in the heavens and get them to come into human bodies. And then you can trap them and, yes, sacrifice them and use those spirits then to make your own universe. And that's kind of the story I'm telling. (laughs) Yeah, it's so interesting, but it's that last part, creating your own universe that, I don't know, I just don't see, maybe I don't see them because I don't recognize them, or maybe I can't tell what reality would be without this kind of magic going on in the Masonic basements all over the place. But I don't know, have they made their own universe? I guess they kind of have. Depends on how you look at it. Well, we yeah, we wouldn't know. I mean, they they might have a whole bunch of them. We might be in one of them now. Uh, well, in the way I'm envisioning it, it's almost like you could be in one of them and you could create some more either inside or you could try to get out and create some more on the outside. And finding out what is inside and outside becomes very difficult at that point. It becomes relative, doesn't it? It does. And this is something I think is, you know, true. Like you can't really get a real perspective on what's up or down or in and out at a certain point. You know, when you, when you break down these stories down to their basics, things become very confusing. I mean, how is it that Saturn is the God of the highest realm up in the heavens, but at the same time, he's trapped in Tartarus supposedly (laughs) beneath us. Yeah. So it, you know, I thought of it as the best you can do probably is just with the, Memories that you have in your own culture, try to arrange them chronologically and then view it as one thing stacked on top of another. So we right now we're on top of Tartarus, supposedly. Well, that's got the remains of the golden age in it. You know, it's got the remains of that other universe, Mm -hmm. but we're on top of it. And that, I think, is part of the symbolism of Atlas holding things up, you know whoever's on the bottom of something else is, you know, by definition, holding up the stuff on top. So this gets into the symbolism that you find in Christianity and Freemasonry. We've got the cornerstone and, you know, yeah, the idea of this sacred place that's the foundation of something, you know, whatever's on top of it. Another thing too is like this idea that we're slaves part of the slavery is that we're holding up the worlds that are set on top of us. Right. So I think we experience this. This is just me theorizing, just pontificating, just making stuff up. But this is how I feel is we experience this in terms of how hard our lives seem to be. And, you know, does it ever seem to you like the whole world is an inefficient machine? You know, you're, putting in so much work and getting so little out of it. And by definition, a machine should give you more product for the work that you put in. It should be increasing value somehow. Well, it feels to us like we just got value flying out the window. We can't figure out where it's going. And that to me is a sign that there is someone else sucking the juice off the top of us. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we just keep trying and trying, but we can't make it. There's this story about in Tartarus that there's these, I think they're called the Nereids or something. There's these three women that their punishment is to hold these jars of water and they're constantly trying to fill the jars of water, but there's a pole in the bottom of them. So they're constantly leaking. So they'll never win. And that's how I think we are here in our universe. That is evidence that there's something else. There's a leak in the vessel somehow, but it's all part of the design, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I love that you said, you know, we're holding up the illusionary constructs because that's the kind of symbolism that I take in. I mean, when we're talking about 
created universes or false realities. That's what they, these things are. I mean, we're the ones holding up the things we're bound to, like contract law or debt-based currency and economic slavery. These are all illusions that we know are illusionary, but we buy into them. We live our life determined by them. And sure enough, none of them are natural. They're all created by these potentially occultists at the top of the pyramid. And so if you want indications that their magic is working, look at the goddamn mind control and the spell we're all under that we literally don't do anything on this planet without green paper. So maybe we should look at those green paper printers. But (laughs) man, this has been a great time. And I'm not surprised we didn't even touch on the Clintons using their voodoo knowledge to curse Haiti twice with an earthquake and a hurricane and a tug of war they're having with voodoo priests or Arthur C. Clarke allegedly picking up boys at the ping pong tables of the Otters Aquatic Club. But um, there's obviously a lot more meat on these bones and we'll definitely have to do a future show about the flat earth and the symbolism around the sun being a false construct. That's interesting to me. But man, for the listeners, if they are interested in this sort of stuff, Genuflect is a provocative, fictionalized story that does a great deal to flesh out what might be behind a lot of these things that we only have pieces of in the conspiracy world. And of course, your blog is great too. Let them know where to go if they want to get further into the stuff we talked about today. Okay, so the center of Twyman world is tracytwyman.com, which I'm going to try to keep updated more and more. And then you can find all my books on Amazon. And, you know, I've got a YouTube channel and some other stuff, but you can find all links to everything if you just go to tracytwyman.com. That's T-R-A-C-Y-T-W-Y-M-A-N.com. Awesome. There it is. Again, Tracy, big thanks. Interesting as always. Keep doing what you do. And I'm sure we'll be doing this again. Great. Thanks a lot, Greg. You got it. Boom goes the dynamite. Tracy Twyman, people. Let her hear it. Straight into the deep end of the pool. The belief systems and occult traditions and rituals of the elite, that nexus is one of my favorite things to do episodes about. It's clear we can see some ritualized elements of major events, date and number coordination, so we know there's something there, but it's really hard to know what. Is there even a homogenized esoteric belief system among the elite? Or maybe there's many, with an infinite number of ways to interpret each one, so it's tough. I do like that this show coordinated with a few other THC things recently for plus members who listened to my breakdown of the consciousness conference lectures. That Bloomberg smart building plan probably sounds a little familiar. Also, I'm 95% sure that the point Chris Knowles was making about the Prometheus statue at Rockefeller Center when we talked to him a few months ago was that he thought it was a cover story for an actual tribute to Mithras. So I do think some dots are being connected with this one. Big dots. In fact, if you remember the Armenia footage I put out from the trip with Graham Hancock that I took, one of the sites in that first video is Garni Temple. It's the only active, still-standing pagan temple in Armenia, and it was actually built, they believe, to venerate, I believe it's pronounced Mir, M-I-H-R, But that's the sun god in Armenian mythology, which is most heavily influenced by Zoroastrianism. And that sun god is basically an equivalent to Mithra. So two plus bonus tie-ins here. Although I can't pretend to know what it all means, but I love to hear researchers make their case for the threads they pull. The idea of different sun gods actually representing different qualities of the sun or actually different suns is pretty wild. But it's so hard to know what the hidden truth is behind all this mythology and symbolism. It's something to think about. It might even tie into the whole Saturn sun theory of the electric universe model. And who knows what kind of time depths we're really talking about. I definitely don't think it's all as simple as Luciferian Satanists trying to undermine the Christian God. So don't even bother typing that YouTube comment. You don't need to conspiracy-explain this stuff to me. I've heard it. It's just so funny how people think they have it all figured out when they really have probably barely scratched the surface. I would never be so arrogant as to say I know from the outside looking in. It's too complex, and I've made this point before too, but I was hiking in Denver, clearly high in more ways than one, and I was looking at all the geometric shapes made by people's shoes. 
in the dirt and mud. And it just kind of occurred to me that if we were all wiped out and someone discovered these tracks, they might be like, oh my God, these people were so enlightened. Everywhere they went, they used the energy provided by sacred geometry to create vortexes under their feet. And they clearly knew what they were doing. They were clearly so evolved. You know, meanwhile, we're just a bunch of idiots wearing Nikes. It's just an example of how difficult it is to interpret something old with little or no context. And in the case of the elite secret religion, something they're purposefully being deceptive about. But I hope we gave you something to chew on. Tracy's book, Genuflect, is really intriguing. A dark conspiracy enthusiast, Da Vinci Code, that's what I would say. And I also love the concepts of the elite trying to jailbreak this environment. That's a lot of fun. It doesn't necessarily mean they're doing it for our benefit. I always hear people say, why are you being an apologist for the elite, thinking that you support them against God? And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe the creator God is a tyrant, and a bunch of tyrants are trying to out-asshole the guy. Meanwhile, the masses play with fucking fidget spinners and wait for a new Game of Thrones. The Game of Thrones is happening, people, and you're missing the whole damn thing. <laughs> but if Tracy wants to do another episode about the sun being some type of artificial crystal, I am probably down to do that. Soon enough, it seems like we're going to have a female crow on our hands here. But let me know if you want me to get her back on to go deeper into that rabbit hole. Clearly, the Plus Show was getting way out there. I really didn't want it to end. We got into Tracy's thoughts and interpretations of the strange symbols and phrases we saw during the Pizzagate spirit cooking season. We talked about some further revelations and understandings of Baphomet that Tracy has come to. Why Johnny Depp cutting off the tip of his own finger might have deeper related significance. We talked about John D. Diamonds and Superman, the work of Anatoly Fomenko and the new chronology folks and why humans in the past might not have known the color blue. Oh, we went for it. So, of course, you might want to sign up for THC Plus and hear that extra hour. You can check out that conference breakdown, watch the first Armenia video, go through the archives, and it's five bucks. Join the club. But we did it. Crazy month for me, for sure. So much going on, and I still got those five shows out. I think it was a great month for the higher side. Matt Landman, Chemtrails and Geoengineering, Stephen Strong with the Out of Africa stuff, Magnora 7 with the Rothschilds carving up Africa and Cecil Rhodes and the De Beers stuff, J.M. DeBoard on Dreams, and then Tracy Twyman on Ancient Elite Occult Orders and the Conquering of the Sun Ritual. Lots of diverse topics with great guests. And if you don't have THC Plus for five bucks, you could go and get the second half of all those shows and more. And I think the extra hours are definitely worth a dollar. And you also allow me to buy higher quality meat when you sign up. But who cares about me? You do it for you. But that's about it. Oh, there's also a new Higher Side Chats shirt at thehiresideclothing.com. Three symbols that represent conspiracy, paranormal, and the occult. A Bioshock-inspired theme. And I really love it. People have been asking for a shirt that actually says the Higher Side Chats for a while now. And we haven't had one because... I just like the shirts that are about something. But either way, new logo shirts are pretty cool. And again, big thanks to Tracy. And I'll see you guys soon. Thanks for listening. I've done what I can. Your move, mystery cults, esoteric elites, and reality weavers. Your fucking move. No one knows what it's like to be the bad man. To be the sad man. Behind blue eyes And no one knows what it's like To be hated To be faded To telling only lies But my dreams Aren't as empty As my conscience I have hours only lonely since they exposed me on THC. Mm-hmm. No one knows what it's 
like to feel these feelings like I do, and I blame you. No one bites back as hard on their anger. None of my pain and woe can show through. But my dreams aren't as empty as my conscience seems to be. I have hours always lonely since they exposed me on THC. Behind.